I want to I talk to you about the meaning of the word mondegreen. I don't know if any of you in here know what the word mondegreen means. Well, I'll give you an example. Have you ever heard somebody uh, sing the wrong lyrics to a song? Maybe a child, and, you know, the nursery rhyme, row, row, row your boat. Life is but a dream. Your child in the back seat belts out, life's a butter dream. Mondegreen. So it's a misunderstood or misinterpreted word or phrase resting from the mis, uh, resulting from the mishearing of lyrics of a song or a poem or some other writing that's spoken aloud. Here's a, here's a few of them. Uh, any Garth Brooks fans here? Um, one of those that's supposed to say, I'm not big on social graces. This is from uh, Friends in Low Places. The wrong lyrics, sometimes often sung, I'm not big on sausage gravy. <laughs> bad Moon Rising by Credence Clearwater Revival. There's a bad moon on the rise. You might hear somebody singing in the car that's traveling with you. Sing, there's a bathroom on the right. Elton John sings, Hold Me Close, Tiny Dancer. You might have some child that was born in the 90s that sings, Hold Me Close, Tony Danza. I think one of the funniest of all of them is Taylor Swift. Um, my girls all listen to Taylor Swift. I've heard everything Taylor Swift has sung no less than a thousand times. It was a song called Blank Space. It includes one of the great misheard lyrics of all time. The refrain in the song Taylor Swift sings is um, the, the way that she sings it is got a list of, uh, got a long list of ex-lovers. That's the refrain. Super happy my girls listen to Taylor Swift. Um, what most of America was singing when the song came out instead of got a list, a long list of ex-lovers, was singing all the lonely Starbucks lovers. Even Taylor Swift's mom was singing that uh, when they were together. Well, Sylvia Wright, she's an American author, she coined the, the phrase Mondegreen in, in 1954. But people have been misinterpreting words and phrases since the beginning of speech. Misinterpreting words and phrases, mondegreens. Turns out people have been doing that with God's Word for a long time. And, and what Jesus is doing here on the Sermon on the Mount is He's wanting to set the record straight. So what we're looking at this morning, what, what the last part of, of Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 27, is th these are the last five of, of six examples that Jesus is giving to illustrate a righteousness that needs to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. That's what he told them in verse 20, these hearers out on the mountain. You need a righteousness that's greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. And what would have been so radical about that is the scribes and the Pharisees were the holiest people anybody knew. That if anybody had righteousness, they must have righteousness. In fact, we learned about righteousness from the scribes and the Pharisees. They're the ones 
who taught us God's Word. Well, what Jesus is saying, you need a, you need a righteousness that's greater than that. That their righteousness, the righteousness they have, the righteousness that they've taught, it's, that is not enough. And so when he teaches that way, the, the, the accusations against Jesus are, well, then he's changing the law or he's, he's, um, he's trying to do away with the law. And Jesus had already said right at the beginning, everything I teach is in, in harmony with the Old Testament and everything I teach is in disharmony with the scribes and the Pharisees. What they're aimed at is your behavior management. They're aimed at you acting the right way. What I am aiming at, what the law is aiming at, what the Old Testament's aiming at, what God's Word has always been aiming at is what's going on inside your heart. The inward desires of the heart of man. So he's saying, Jesus is saying essentially, he says, so let me show you what I mean. Last week we looked at the first example and he was talking about anger and he said about anger, um, you've heard it's said of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. You say, hey, I haven't murdered anybody. Jesus says, yeah, but have you been angry with anybody? I'm not talking about the outward act of murdering someone. I'm talking about the inward heart of anger, sustained anger. Well, these first two examples, anger, and then the first one we'll look at this morning, lust, they're lifted right out of the Ten Commandments. Jesus said, I'm going to show you what I mean. He's going to lift two right out of the Ten Commandments. The third example is going to come from Deuteronomy 24, also from the rising writings of Moses. And it's Moses' instruction to the nation of Israel on divorce. The, the, the fourth example comes out of Leviticus 19. Actually, the fourth, the fifth, and the sixth probably all in some way come out of Leviticus 19. It's about loving your neighbor, then about seeking restitution from your neighbor. And then he comes back to loving your neighbor and how it applies even to your enemies. In fact, when Paul later will be writing his letters to the church, he writes to Romans, to the Roman church. He says all the commandments, they're summed up in this, in this single simple sentence. And in Romans 13, 9 and 10, he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Because love is the fulfilling of the law. So, so in these examples, Jesus is going to show how this righteousness is measured in the heart, in the inward man. Every one of these examples, they illustrate this kingdom righteousness that we need for the kingdom of heaven and that it has to have a radical impact on our relationships on earth. So I'm going to break it into two uh, two headings this morning. We're going to look at the um, example two and example three, and then we'll look at the last three examples, four, five, and six. The first two, you might um, call it this, God's design for sex and marriage. And both of these examples, we have not only the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, recorded by Matthew, 
There are other teachings on these two issues recorded in the gospel, as well as how Jesus addresses these issues specifically when he encounters people. Let me show you what I mean. Look at verse 27. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Now, when he, when he does this, he's pointing back to the seventh commandment. But what he's also doing in saying, you have heard that it is said, he's not appealing only to what Moses wrote because of what God revealed. He's also saying, listen, you, you've heard it said, you've heard it taught, you shall not commit adultery. And what Jesus says, but I want you to hear the real teaching. I want you to know what God really meant when he said this. This is why he says in verse 28, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right eye causes you to sin, cut it off. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away, for it's better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Well, example two, uh, example three, the next one, divorce, they're connected, lust and divorce. And they're connected with the word adultery. The section on lust is going to begin with adultery. The section on divorce is going to end with adultery. And the word there is mochio. And it's not something that you ever wanted to be found guilty of. In the strictest sense of the word, it applied to sexual relations between a married or a betrothed woman or an engaged woman and a man other than her husband, and it was punishable by death. Now remember, Jesus is going after the heart. And so with crystal clarity, he's aiming at his hearer's understanding of the high holiness and purity of God's design. He wants them to know what the ethics are of the kingdom of God are. When it comes to sex, it's purity. When it comes to marriage, it's faithfulness. And so what Jesus is doing is he's going to cut through all the games that people were playing with the law. See, before Jesus addresses the gymnastics that the rabbis had been doing with the issue of divorce, Jesus goes after the heart. After, after all, that's what he's aiming at. So the seventh commandment, Jesus says, isn't just or merely something you're guilty of with a physical act. It's the attitude of your heart. That's enough to indict you. Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, let me take a guess and say at this point that the mountainside that Jesus is teaching on just got a whole lot more uncomfortable. Make a few comments. First, there is a difference between temptation and sin. Temptation itself is not a sin. So there's, there's sometimes a look that is temptation. There is sometimes a look that is sin. It is not the first look. Let's say it this way. It's not the first look. It's the second look. 
It's not the glance, it's the stare. It's not the passing thought, it's the cherished memory. It is looking with the intent to lust. That word lustful intent, it's translated a few ways in the New Testament. It can carry a positive meaning, like desire or or longing. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul writes, if anyone aspires to the office of elder, he desires, that's the same word, a noble task. Luke twenty-two fifteen, Jesus is going to um, share this Passover meal that becomes the Lord's Supper that we, that we remember. Uh, Luke twenty-two fifteen, he says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Sometimes the word's translated longing. Other times it's translated coveting. Here it's lustful intent. Let's say a few words about this. God, God created us to be people with desires, even strong desires. Desire for intimate relationship, especially desire for intimate relationship with him. Desire for meaningful service in the world. But sin comes along and it distorts those desires. We replace intimacy that we were created for with illicit sexual pleasure. We replace meaningful service to others for for power and control and significance and and recognition, and sin, what it does is it comes and it distorts our desires and it seeks to move those desires out of bounds and out of balance. And when we take a desire for something that's good and we make that something good something that's ultimate, that desire now has become lust. John Calvin famously said, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. Tim Keller added to that, that the heart, it takes good things like a successful career or love or material possessions, even family, and turns them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them as the center of our lives because we think that they can give us significance and security and safety and fulfillment if we attain them. It can happen to a student that becomes consumed with grades. It can be the lust for acceptance from others so that we never say no. It can be the obsession for control in our lives so that we never become vulnerable. It's seeking what we think is best, the best and easiest alternative to satisfying an empty heart without bowing our need before God. The later New Testament writers, they know this. Paul says it in Galatians 5, 17. For the desires of the flesh, those are against the Spirit. And in the desires of the Spirit, this is for the believer, they're against the flesh, for, for they're opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want. So he says, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. In Romans 13, 
put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires or lustful intents. See, the desires of the flesh is a heart issue. And every single one of us has a heart issue. That's what Jesus is getting at. That's why it was so uncomfortable, I imagine, on the mountainside. It's why it sometimes can get, like today, so uncomfortable in this room. So in a few minutes, we'll look how Jesus applies this to, keeps applying it to our hearts and, and these other things. When we struggle to tell the truth, a, a heart that struggles with looking out for ourselves above anybody else, a heart that that applies uh, that, that when we're filled with hate and, and bitterness. And, and so now it's safe to say, I think Jesus, you know, he has everybody's attention. He's, and being the Son of God, he has the ability to read the room like no other preacher before him or no other preacher that's come after him. So what happens when you're speaking? You, you feel the vibe of the room. You can tell, hey, are people with me? Are they uncomfortable? But here's the thing. Sensing the discomfort and the uneasiness, Jesus doesn't back off. He doesn't let anybody off the hook here. He, he presses in and he, and he makes these statements that, that, that add this sort of exclamation point to the eternal seriousness of sin. Look again what he says in verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand it causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Well, Jesus will say it again in Matthew 18. He'll tell a different group the very same thing. Here's what he's saying. Sin is serious. We must do something about our sin. And it hangs in the air on that mountainside. Is it hyperbole? Is it exaggeration? Is he being literal? Origen in the third century, he took it literally and castrated himself. Made it impossible to act upon his lust. The problem is it, it, it didn't make him impossible for him to lust. So we want to be careful. We, we, we want to not take this too simplistically. If you gouge out the right eye, you just pluck that right eye right out, guess what the left eye is going to do? You pick up right where the right eye stopped. If we gouge out the left eye, we'll just keep doing it with our mind's eye. Listen, I believe in the literal. So I'll say this carefully. 
We don't want to be too simplistic. We've got to feel the force of what Jesus is saying. So let's say what's true from the passage, what Jesus will, will go on and even say later in, in Matthew 18. It's better to go to heaven maimed than to go to hell whole. John Stott, he makes the observation, dramatic speech is what Jesus is using, this, this vivid image to drive the point home. Take sin seriously. In other words, he says, if something precious to you leads you to sin, get rid of it. Isn't it true that we trivialize sin? That's what Jesus is getting at. I mean, we dabble at it, we nibble at the edges, we try it on for size, we let sin reside in the small little pockets of our life. And, and if we say, listen, well, sin's, I mean, sin's not that bad. What we're saying is God is not that holy. And if we're saying that, ultimately what we're saying is that Jesus didn't have to die. So Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's praying to the Father and he asks, is there any other way than to go to the cross to be arrested and stripped naked and beaten and humiliated and nailed to a cross and die as a curse? Is there any other way? And there was no other way. God had to sacrifice his son for my sin. For your sin. And anything stands between us and Christ. We, we want to ruthlessly, savagely tear it out, throw it away. Drastic measure is always appropriate to protect our spiritual health. Halfway measures won't do it. Now, I want to come back to this in a little bit, but I want it to sit with you for a minute. If God's speaking to you about some things that need to be put out of your life, then do what he says and put them out of your life. If he's telling you, hey, you got to change your visual habits, and for the sake of your soul, the sake of your family, change them. God's saying to you this morning, that relationship that you're toying with has to end? Then do it today. Don't give Satan, don't give sin an opportunity. See, what the religious leaders and scribes were doing, what they were famous for doing, what we're famous for doing, as we interpret God's laws in such a way that we feel like we could keep them 
And in doing so, we're right with God. Jesus comes back. He did it last week we looked at. We're looking at it this morning. If you're parsing out the letter of the law and you're, you're asking, okay, how, how far to the line can I go and not cross it? How, how close can I get and not cross it? Then the focus on the letter of the law has done nothing to your heart. It is the spirit of the law that you're missing. So just because they or us, we say, well, I haven't committed adultery, doesn't mean, Jesus says, that we're guiltless. Because what matters is what's going on in your heart. So the discussion of adultery leads naturally to the question of divorce. Look at verses 31 and 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. This is coming out of Deuteronomy chapter 24, which isn't exactly the way Deuteronomy chapter 24 says it, but this is the way that religious leaders were teaching. Jesus says, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, this is a very big question in the pages of the New Testament. And all of the New Testament's teachings on divorce and remarriage, they're not found in one place. This is only two verses. You can go to Matthew chapter 19. Jesus will treat it in a more extended way. Paul addresses it. But it's not an easy job putting all of it together. But here's what we can say this morning from two verses. We can say that divorce is a problem. It was a problem then. It's a problem now. At the center of marriage is a covenant with God. And a divorce is a breach. It's a, it's a ripping of that covenant. And what Jesus is addressing is the games that the religious leaders were playing with divorce, and he's addressing it head on. So there were two schools of thought, two religious schools of thought. One was the school of Shammai. The other was the school of Hillel. Shammai, he was the fundamentalist when it came to divorce, and and Hillel, he was the liberal. Shammai's view was narrow. Divorce was permitted, but the reasons were very few. Hillel, he he found lots of reasons that could justify divorce. And so you can guess which religious school was the most popular when it came to divorce. 
So the whole question centered around that passage in Deuteronomy chapter 24. And there was one word, one Hebrew word that's used. It's only used one other time in the Old Testament, so it's hard to translate, hard to know what exactly it is that it meant. The word translated in the ESV, it says indecency. It's a mondegreen of sorts. Shammai, he said something like, well, listen, it, that indecency, that's something very bad, very, very bad. Whatever it is, it's bad. Hillel, he took a wider berth. Indecency, well, that could be a lot of things. If you don't like your wife's cooking, literally, he said this. She burns the supper. It seems like indecency to me. There's something more trivial, like I don't really like the way she looks anymore. It's indecent, which really means I think I might fancy somebody else. Either way, divorce was viewed as something normal. And Jesus comes along and says it's not normal. In chapter 19, he says it's not normal and it's not natural and it's not ever what God intended for marriage. Divorce is the overflow, he says, of hearts that are hard. And so with a statement like that, you think, well, Jesus must have had a huge problem with people who were divorced. Here's what's so surprising. Yes, Let's be clear, Jesus hates divorce. But he doesn't hate people who've been divorced. See, it turns out people with hard hearts or sinful hearts or broken lives or broken bodies, Jesus gravitated to them. As to adultery that is caused by divorce, let me just say one word about that. The way that it is written here and in the other places, it is an act of adultery, not a state of adultery. A second marriage, for instance, and we won't go into all that this morning, except to say for some, a second marriage is a place to seek forgiveness for an act, but it is not an ongoing state of sinfulness. When I counsel couples, premarital couples, and the question is, you know, as a pastor, have you ever married anybody that's been divorced before? Have you done a second marriage, you know, a third, I think I've done a third, for somebody? Yes, I have. I'll tell you, in the counseling before that marriage, the premarital counseling before it, I always, you know, I always remind folks of what they already know about a second marriage is that the, the odds are more against them than even a first marriage. But one of the things I want to do is I, I want them to stop and for the sake of the marriage that is about to begin to take an opportunity to confess sin and to seek forgiveness. 
so many people go into a second marriage and they've never done that. Tell you what else I do in relation to this whole section on lust and divorce. So if I'm counseling a pre-married couple and neither one of them have been divorced, but they've been dating for a long period of time, this seems to be unfortunately more common, and they haven't waited until marriage. They've already begun a portion of their marriage now before they're married, if you know what I mean. And I say, here's the thing. Do you know what you need to do? And I look at the guy. So you need to confess that as sin. Confess it as sin. And? You need to confess it as sin to your bride-to-be. And you need to seek her forgiveness as well. And I look at the bride-to-be, and I say the same thing. Sin. Confess it. Seek forgiveness. And stop it until today. People love that session in premarital counseling, by the way. You know what's great? Turn over to John chapter 8. Don't do it, but you can later. There's a woman that's caught in adultery, and all of these things that Jesus is teaching about is right there in the center of the whole situation. She's dragged out into the town square. All the men are there because they're going to stone her. This is what the Old Testament says to do. Of course, there's no guy there with her, just a woman. And Jesus happens upon the scene. They want to know what he's going to do. Jesus looks at him and says, you are without sin. You guys, the one who's without sin, why don't you go ahead and cast the first stone? All the stones drop to the ground. The end of the scene is just Jesus and the woman that was caught. You know, the only person that had any right to take the stone and to throw the rock at the woman was Jesus. He says, I don't condemn you. But go and sin no more. There's the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. Okay, great. I want to tell you all about this. Go, go get your husband and bring him back. She says, oh, well, I don't have a husband. Which is true, but it was a shade of truth, wasn't it? He says, oh, I, I know all about it. I know all about your previous husbands, and I know that the guy you're living with now is not your husband. And what happens in that scene is that woman is transformed. She becomes the evangelist to the Samaritans and runs into the town. He told me everything I'd ever done. Life was changed. That's not even to mention Mary Magdalene, a woman with a shady past. To put that nicely, a broken past who 
Jesus redeems, and she becomes the first witness to the resurrection. She's the first one to tell others the good news of Jesus. But I want you to hear this morning. There's conviction that you feel, okay? But hear this. God delights in forgiveness. And every Christian, every believer knows the reality of failure when it comes to the divine purposes that God has in our lives. In fact, that's part of what it means to be a believer. To know how far you've fallen, to know how much you've failed, to know how great your sin is and that there's not anything that you can do about it in and of yourself. To that moment, to that place of conviction, that feeling of desperation, that you look to Jesus and say, save me. If you will, you can. Well, I want to move on. I haven't left much time, but I want you to see the last three. If you'll look at it in your Bibles, um, 33 to 37, your title in your Bible may say oaths, and 38 to 42 says, mine says retaliation. And the last bit, verse 43 to the end of the chapter, says love your enemies. In, in the section on oaths, beginning in 33, look at what he says. Again, you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. And anything more from, than this comes from evil. It, it is essentially what he's saying. Tell the truth. Be such a truth teller that when you say yes, your yes is believed. And when you say no, your no is believed. The Pharisees, they were doing all of these crazy things. They were, they were saying, okay, listen, here's, here's the thing. If you, if you start the thing you say with in God's name, then you have to keep it. If you, if you swear something, you say in God's name, you have to keep it. But, but if you don't say in God's name, then you don't have to keep it. The, the Mishnah even goes on and it says something like this. If you swear by Jerusalem, by Jerusalem, you, you don't have to keep it. But if you swear toward Jerusalem, then you have to keep it. If you swear by the temple, no. If you swear by the gold of the temple, yes. If you swear by the altar, no. If you swear by the sacrifice on the altar, yes. It's ridiculous. This ridiculous culture Jesus was dealing with head on. He says, look, everything's under God's sovereign control. Deliberate ambiguity does not relieve your responsibility 
Not when you've made a promise. Not when you've said yes. Not when you've said no. You cannot say one thing and mean another. You know what's interesting? You go all the way back to Genesis. You go to Genesis chapter 21, verse 23. It's the second time Abraham is going to be in a relationship or have, a, have, a, have to have dealings with a king named Abimelech. The first Abimelech, he lies to about who Sarah is, says, he's, says she's his sister, which is a half-truth. The second Abimelech, he does pretty much the same thing. God comes to that Abimelech, says, I'm going to kill you. Abimelech says, well, I didn't know. So Abimelech goes. He wants to square things with Abraham. He brings Sarah back, and they're going to make a covenant. They're going to make this treaty with each other. But, but before they do it, Abimelech, he looks at Abraham, and he says, okay, before we do this deal, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or my descendants. Do you know why you have to make someone swear that they won't lie to you? Because they're a liar. Guess what? Abraham has a son named Isaac. Guess what Isaac does? Same thing his father did. To a guy named Abimelech. He lied to him. Guess who Isaac's son was? Jacob. You know what Jacob means? Liar. And you know what God calls himself? And the God of Abraham. And Isaac. And Jacob. He's your God too. Well, the next one's about retaliation. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, which is totally ripped out of context, but that's what they did. But I say to you, do not resist the one who's evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him also the other. You know these. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have his, your coat, cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go a mile, go too. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Essentially what this being said is, are you willing to put aside your rights in order to love the other person? They're not saying we should always forego legal protection. It's not what he's saying. He says, are you willing to forego your rights? In an act of love, even if it means suffering loss of your stuff. Truth is, that's exactly what Jesus did. Sometimes that's what it takes to love another, especially our enemies. Treating others more significant than ourselves. You know, there's the big I am second campaign. It probably should be I am third, you know? We can become very good at hanging on to what we think is ours and our rights. 
the right we have is the right to forgive. I'm sure of that right. Always have the right to forgive. Sometimes it's the only way to stop the downward spiral of sin. Where sin is broken, joy can be restored. Then he tells them to love your enemies. You heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those that persecute you. And all of that is grounded in the very character of God. You go on that active love pursues, passive love resists. That we would want to display grace the kind of grace that saved us to our enemies. Now, all of this, if you walk out of here this morning and you think, okay, great, I got five things on my to-do list. I'm going to gouge out my eye. Let me just warn you, all of this will take more than willpower. Look at the very end, Matthew 5, 48. Jesus sums it all up. Okay, here's what I mean. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's the bookend to chapter 5, verse 20. I tell you, unless the righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, unless you have that kind of righteousness, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. What kind of righteousness is it? It's the kind of righteousness that you're perfect just like your heavenly Father's perfect. And Jesus' point is that the righteousness you need to enter the kingdom of heaven, we said this last week, you're not going to find it here on earth, and you're certainly not going to find it. You're not going to find it at the bottom of your willpower. Everything here is broken. Sin broke it. And Jesus says, that's why I came. Do you see now? Do you see now the kind of righteousness you need? It's a righteousness that you, in and of yourself, you can never attain. And Paul knew it. He writes it in Romans chapter 7. He says, I know, I know nothing good dwells in me. I have the desire to do what's right, but I don't have the ability to carry it out. Paul goes on to talk about this war that's going on inside of him. The war, it's internal and it's it's this battleground that's taking place in his body and his experience. And it's a spiritual war on an earthly battleground. And the war is for his right now. For this moment. And the future of who he is in Christ is at war with who he was as a captive for sin. His reality in Christ at war with his old self in sin, and they are at war for this moment, for this period of time, this very present moment. And just like Paul, your future is at war with your past for this moment. Who we once were versus who we will be one day. And the prize you're fighting for, 
is right now. Paul says, wretched man I am. Who will deliver me? And he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Who will deliver me? Not what, but who. It's a person who delivers. It's not a law. It's not a willpower. It's not religion. What he needs is a Savior, and so do If you're here this morning and you've never believed in Jesus Christ, then what the Bible says is you don't have him in you. You're not in Christ. He's not in you. And your need this morning is to recognize the sacrifice of him who offered himself up for you, Jesus, who gave himself up for sinners. If the Holy Spirit this morning's brought you to conviction that you're lost and you're guilty and you're under condemnation, then don't run out of here trying to do better. Run straight to the cross and receive the free forgiveness of your sins by the grace of God through His Son, Jesus. Come to Christ. Believe in him. Receive everlasting life as a free gift, not because of anything you've done or ever could do, but according to the mercy that he's shown to you. If you're here this morning and you're a believer, here's my same message to you. Come to Christ. Run to the cross. Look to him in the experiences of your life, in your troubles, your disappointments, your tragedies. And all of your needs come to him. Believe him. Worship him. If you would, would you bow with me? Father, I pray that you would take these words, these hard words, these high words, these true words spoken on a mountainside recorded by Matthew, these words that came from the mouth of the Word who was made flesh and dwelt among us. Father, the words of your eternal Son, Jesus. The high call to a righteousness that we don't have in ourselves and we can't manufacture by anything that we do. But it is the righteousness you require nonetheless. And so, Father, we're left with no choice but to run to your Son. Running away from ourselves and from all the things that we are seeking to fill up these empty hearts and that we would run straight to your Son, Jesus believing in him, accepting, believing that he died on the cross for our sin. And three days later was raised to new life so that we may live. So, Father, I ask you to help us to believe. And we pray this the only way we can. 
In the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit.